Hello, and welcome to episode 133 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week, host Karen Meyer talks with Joy Clark. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. ClosureConj 2017 tickets are still available, so you still have a chance to get to Baltimore on October 12th through the 14th to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Closure. Go on over to 2017.closure-conj.org to sign up. And if you do find yourself in Baltimore on October 17th, why not check out the Baltimore Closure Meetup, who are getting together on Tuesday, October 17th at Yet Analytics. Go on over to meetup.com slash Baltimore-closure for more information. If you have a closure-related event you'd like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast at cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on the Karen and Joy and episode 133 of the Cognicast. everyone. Today is September 25th and this is the Cognicast. I'm Karen Meyer and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Joy Clark from InnoQ to the show. So thank you for being with us, Joy. This is great. Yeah, thank you for having me. And you are talking to us uh, from Germany, right? Yes. And what, where, what, what city in Germany? Um, oh, I'm on, I'm, <laughs> right now I'm in Monheim. Oh, which okay. is a little city on the Rhine. So very cool. The, the weather there is it. It's it's not bad uh, by Monheim standards. It tends to rain a lot here, but it's not raining right now, so that's good. Yeah. So I, I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and um, our city has uh, pretty big ties to Germany, like culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have an o- Oktoberfest that we um, celebrate every year around this time in September. I'm not sure mm-hmm. exactly why but we always celebrate it in September, but we do. Um, maybe it's the weather, I guess. But uh, it, it, it revolves around uh, a lot of good beer, which mm-hmm. is really nice. And then also we have this chicken dance <laughs> that we do. Really? And I'm not okay. sure whether that's German or that's just some weird Cincinnati thing. Well, it could be Byrish. Like, Oktoberfest actually comes from Bayern, which is in the south of Germany. Ah, okay. So here they don't, like, they might do a little, I guess I saw, I was in Berlin last week, and I saw them setting up something for Oktoberfest, but it's not, like, traditional to the region. Okay, okay. Maybe they do weird chicken dances down south of Germany. Yeah, it's very strange. I don't know why the Cincinnatians do this, but, you know, they just play this music, and it's a chicken dance music, and everybody collects their arms like a chicken <laughs> like the traditional chicken dance or I, like a different one i don't know it's very like i said it's very odd um <laughs> everybody seems to do it i don't know who started it but mm-hmm. um yeah uh flapping your wings and and turning around and then drinking beer <laughs> oh, along with okay. it i don't know it's very strange but um, that's Cincinnati for you. So um, <laughs> you are from the U.S. Though, originally, right? Yes. 
Um, I moved here when I was 18. So tell me about that. How did that all come about? Um, I was studying. No, sorry, I wasn't studying yet. I was in school and um, I only applied for two universities, didn't get in. And I was kind of like, I didn't want to go to either of them. And then I was like, what else can I do? And and with my church and with my um, like network, um, I knew some people in Germany and I was like, I kind of want to go to Germany. So I checked to see if I could move. Um, like if there would be like, I didn't want to just go somewhere where I didn't have a network or didn't know anybody, but I knew some people in Germany and then studies are free in Germany. So I just ended up moving. Um, that's how that happened. <laughs> and study? It was an, yeah. Yeah. So I ended up studying. So it was an adventure for me. I decided to go for a year when I was 18 to learn the language. Um, and then if that went well, I would uh, start studying. I would do my bachelor's in, in Germany. Um, and then I, it went well the first year. I really liked the country. And so I stayed on and did my bachelor's. And then um, after I did my bachelor's, I stayed on and did my master's. And then I decided to stay. <laughs> so. So, so what are what are the biggest um, I don't know like surprises um, going going to a different culture um, that you encountered? Americans are really loud. <laughs> it's it was interesting because it wasn't I never got culture shock coming to Germany because I expected it to be different. But then I went back to the states after living here for a year and I was like, this is weird. These are like this is this is not what I'm used to. So I had like reverse culture shock and I wasn't expecting that. Um yeah. So like how how are Americans loud? Like just like all the time? It's, I think my theory is that um uh, like in America, you grow up in really big houses and everything has a lot of space. And um, so you never learn how to be quiet when you're inside or like in a bus situation because you don't know people don't usually go with public transport and you don't usually live in like apartments with people with neighbors who are directly next to you or below you or above you. And so the the main thing I had to adjust when I moved to Germany was to learn to like lower my voice when I was on public transport and to like be quiet when I was in the apartment because otherwise the neighbors get mad. And I grew up in a, in a, a city where I had a huge house and, and the only people in the house were my parents and my siblings and I could be as loud as I wanted and no one really cared. Um, and so for me, that was the biggest change that I had to make to fit in. Um, so That's really interesting. I never really yeah. thought, of, I, I have heard that though, that Americans are, are just loud. So <laughs> I think it's a, just, just a matter of like growing up in uh, big areas with a lot of uh, personal space and a lot of physical space between you, then you don't really notice how loud you are. But if you're in like a small closed environment with tons of other people around you, um, it's a bit of a different situation. So Germany, I mean, you tend to live in an apartment building and it's it's smaller and um, there's neighbors everywhere, so you have to pay attention to how loud you are. So, uh, so you had to learn the language, and then, I mean, learn the language well enough that you could actually take college courses. That seems like really daunting, at least from my perspective. Um, I think, yeah, I think I was I was 18, so I figure this is uh, this is either I do it or I don't. You know, like I can fail, but I'm 18, and there's enough time to catch up. Uh, if I fail. And so I, I went to language school and, and it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, I think if you are like at 18 and it was pretty easy for me to pick up the language. Um, I, when I started, uh, uni- university, I had 
it was about a two or three month period where there was a whole bunch of vocabulary I didn't know. And then that was more difficult for me um, in the courses because I didn't know what they were talking about, especially calculus. That was Mm. hard. Wow. (laughs) They have different like notation and they have different words. And it took me, the word for um, relation is abbildung and the word for derivative is ableitung. And I mixed those two words up for the first three months of calculus. And I was really confused, (laughs) really confused. I had no idea what they were talking about. I thought they were talking about like derivatives when, when they were talking about relations and yeah, it was interesting. (laughs) So, but the computer stuff you're doing that, was that still mainly in English? Well, I learned Java at least the first semester. Um, And I had taken a Java class in the States as well. And uh, syntactically, it's the same. So for computer science classes, I never really had a difficulty with it because a lot of the, even the technical terms have been taken from English. So um, there are different words that you have to, you kind of learn. It's a little bit of a vocabulary, but it wasn't that bad. Um, so. So uh, I think also I had read that um, you got to do opportunity to do some research or be, help with some research at the university. Yeah, I was a research um, assistant at the university during my studies. So I actually worked on tooling. Um, my department uh, was researching formal methods and how to formally verify uh, software systems, model and verify software systems. And I got started out doing the tooling for the model checker that uh, they are developing at the University of Dusseldorf. Um, So, and then I got my foot in the door. So I ended up doing a little bit of uh, research myself at a certain point, Um, but I got started with tooling and then kind of figured that out and then uh, went on to doing more actual modeling and some verification as well. Yeah, that's kind of like a hot topic now, this like formal yeah. verification systems. What what were your impressions? Do you do you do you think it's a useful thing or Um I think it's a necessary thing especially when uh developing safety critical systems. Um if like the main example was with a train or something that's automatic, um when you're developing a system like that and it and you're writing software and the software is incorrect, then if it breaks, lives, you know, like people can die. It's not like a web application. If it breaks, then there's, you know, that's also not good. But (laughs) um, when you're talking about a safety critical system, like a rocket or a train system or something, then you should use some kind of of, uh, verification system because testing only proves the absence of certain bugs but it doesn't prove the correctness of the system. It doesn't prove what the system should do. And, um, and it doesn't prove the absence of all bugs. So you can't like, just by testing your system, you can test it as much as you want, but it's not sufficient to prove that it really does what it should do. Um, and that there are no bugs that you haven't thought of. Whereas if you do use modeling or something, you can make uh, you make you you think about the system as a whole, what it should do, how it should behave, and then you can use that uh, in order to verify your system. With there's a lot of different ways to do that. Yeah, that uh, definitely sounds like a good thing, especially for maybe like a car, <laughs> self-driving yeah. cars. Like yeah. I, I would like that. <laughs> 
I know. I, I'm kind of nervous about the whole self-driving car thing. Like, really nervous. Yeah. I, think, I, I mean, sometimes my Google Maps, like when I follow Google Maps, usually Google knows exactly what to do. But sometimes it comes to the street with construction site. And uh, and it tells me to go straight. And the, the road's, like, blocked off. Um, and I'm like, okay, I know because I'm a human that I can't go straight. And so I turn. Um, and I'm thinking, like, with a... a self-driven car, um, <laughs> what happens in that situation when the road condition is, that there's just something that the road condition doesn't know about, a uh, blocked road or. Yeah, I'm not signing up to be an alpha user. That's just. Nope, nope, neither. <laughs> I'll be on the beta list for that. <laughs> I'll wait until the, the end release. <laughs> really? So um, <laughs> what, uh, what other things have you been doing um, since your research? Um, well, I finished my thesis a year and a half ago, and since then I, I started working at InnoQ, which uh, is a company that does uh, software, like some consulting and project work um, in Germany. And uh, since then I've been doing app web applications. Um, so that's kind of my thing now. Uh, is I, I really liked it because in the university I got a lot of like some theoretical knowledge about networks and and uh, web applications and stuff, but I never really practically applied it. Um, yeah. So what what is the big difference, I guess, between, I mean, I guess you did the, the research and kind of a lot of pure, um, you know, it, it, computer science in that field and then versus, mm -hmm. you know, in the trenches, <laughs> <laughs> dealing with what businesses need to go through. What what are what are some of the kind of key learnings? Well, I think it was just um, in, in my situation, I could have stayed on and did more, more research, but I wanted to actually write software that people would use. Um, <laughs> that's what kind of what I wanted to do. And and uh, for the most part, web applications they're things that that deliver business value. Um, they may not be the most exciting things or, you know, most cutting edge. But if you if you can build a good web application, you make a company really happy. Um, and and that's also I just wanted to program as well. I didn't want to write research papers, really. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my uh, my uh, reasons for not going on and, and doing more research. Um so uh, do you talk directly with your end users and communicate with Darko with them and then and then figure out what they what they need from there? Yeah. And I think that's the most ex most exciting part about software development, actually. Um, well, I've come to that conclusion. The, the technology does play a part in making good software for sure. But if you're not building what your user needs, then what's the point? You can use like I think. Um, someone said once that developers always get distracted by shiny technologies, like wanting to try out the next new thing or, um, and I, I don't know, I, I like talking to people and seeing what do they need. Um, you know, and it's kind of funny sometimes like I'll show them a, a web page, like a web, web application I've been working on and they're like, Oh, I want this to move up like. A little bit you know or move this over here and then you can do that with just a little CSS and then they're like oh my goodness that is so cool and they get really excited and it's the the you didn't have to do that much to to get it to do that so uh, 
I think that's that's nice to be able to really provide what the um, what the user wants. Uh, and it's difficult as well. Uh, even the communication is the most important part, I think, to try to figure out what they actually want. Uh, it's not always trivial. Yeah, I, I mean, communication, after being in consulting for a long while, communication is is definitely a really important part of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so on the communication side, um, is there any sort of techniques when talking to them that that you use or um, like how how do you how do you figure out what they need um, I think usually when you are developing a web application and you want to communicate with a customer you should just uh, bring what you have and then talk about that with the customer um, and say or do have them do a like a run through with the application is this what you need? Um, is this how, if you're searching for something, is this how you would search for it? Um, and then they'll tell you. It's really easy for them because it's the, the, they're the ones who are going to be using the software. And then they'll tell you, though, that's kind of annoying if it does this. And then you can be like, okay. And then you just take that uh, that feedback and then integrate it into the next cycle. And then you can uh, fix it and show them again. And then they have other things that they want. And uh some things are more difficult to implement because you have to do like a lot of backend work, but a lot of things can be just little things or translation uh, changes or wording changes or something. Um, and yeah, so as far as, so that's, I think the easiest way to communicate if you're doing web applications is just to have the web application there and to talk to the users about it. Yeah, I, I totally agree that that whole, you know, feedback loop is so important. Yeah to uh, really get right, and that enables a lot. Uh, so this whole um, you know, web app thing uh, kind of ties into what you gave a talk about recently at, yeah. um, it was your closure, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And what was the title of the talk again? Uh, the, top, the title of the talk was simple and secure, like with question mark. Um, uh, yeah, that was the title of my talk. So I was kind of going into, like, I love Ring um, enclosure because uh, the HTTP protocol, which is what web applications run on, is basically just a request and a response. And I love that Ring maps the request to a map, so data structure, um, with like the keywords get and, and the URI and that sort of thing. And then it just returns a response. So if you have a function, like a pure closure function, that just takes a map and then returns a map, then it's a valid web application enclosure. Um, so I love that because that's very simple. And uh, when you have, you can just add then add like the, the ring middleware, which is just like a layer in between that performs the trans transformation for you uh, kind of and, and can work on the map adding keys or removing keys. Um, and you can then just, as long as it fulfills the contract um, of the the uh, um, <laughs> the contract of the map that it has the right keys in the in the request map and the response map, you can just plug the functions together uh, like Lego, really. And uh, I just find that very elegant um, and it's very simple. But my point in the talk was is that. Um, 
because we are responsible for putting the pieces together in our, if we're doing wing applications, um, we need to also, we have the responsibility to make sure that we have the security aspect. There's the puzzle piece. Well, it's not only one puzzle piece, but that's a very important part of any web application just to make sure it's a secure. And that's not something you can, you can there's a lot of uh, web applications in enclosure it's easy to leave it leave it off if you forget, basically. Um, and so I actually made the the talk because I like developing web applications. And when I was going through it, I was like, okay, I, I was thinking to myself, I need a checklist for developing secure web applications. Like, how what do I need to check when I'm developing a web application enclosure? What do I need to go through? What do I need to do? And so I uh, looked into what different things I need to consider, and then I made it talk out of it. So uh, for people that haven't seen the talk, what, what are kind of the top things that, that you need to consider? Um, well, I th think that there's the OWASP 2017 it just came out. It's the top 10 list of uh, security vulnerabilities. And I think everyone who does a web application should look at that because those are the uh, kind of things that we as developers can influence in our web application. There's a lot of security concerns that we don't really have control over as a developer, like the platform we're running on or, or that sort of thing. But those things on the top 10 list are, um, are things that we can, can actually look at and uh, fix. So the top one is probably cross-site scripting. Um, and cross-site scripting is uh, when we get some uh, we we give the we, we get user input and we just render it as is in an HTML page. So if the user input contains a script tag, as we know from JavaScript, then that script tag will be um, automatically executed in the browser when the user loads the page. And uh, that is what a very easy vulnerability to build into your application. Um, and it basically allows the user, if they find it, or, or the attacker, if they find it, to execute any JavaScript code on your web page, um, which is, is not a good thing. No, not at all. <laughs> so are, are there any um, like libraries uh, in, in Clojure that are particularly useful to helping solve these security problems? Um, yeah, there's so as far as cross-site scripting goes, um, the uh, you need to use an HTML templating library that has automatic HTML escaping, which means that if it has user input, gets user input, it'll escape like all of the the brackets. I don't know what they're called. The core, they're not. I don't know what they're the script tags. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I don't the know the word for the for the little <laughs> triangle things. Um, the less than and greater than signs, mm -hmm. that's what they escape. And so um, that will prevent any user input from being uh, rendered as JavaScript or being interpreted as JavaScript on the browser. Um, and I think one important thing to note there is that Hiccup does not have escaping by default. Most HTML libraries, uh, HTML templating libraries do. So there's not really many much, uh, there's honestly in Clojure, there's not that much to choose from, but there's something like, um, the one that's like Django, Selmer, there's Selmer, um, there's um, there's an handlebars implementation, although that's a bit older. Um, I think Coplon, which is in ClojureScript. 
And those, I think, all have uh, escaping by default. Uh, Hiccup, which is the most commonly used one, does not. Um, there, it doesn't in, in 2.00, uh, but then all the macros aren't there. So you just need to know that, and you need to just uh, use either use Hiccup 2, like the alpha version, I think it's 2.0.0 minus alpha 1 right now. Um, either use that or make sure... You, when you render any HTML using Hiccup, that you like explicitly use the escape HTML function when you render it. Definitely. So, <laughs> that's cross-site scripting. <laughs> um, there's also CSERF, which I actually find quite difficult to um, explain. I, I put a slide in my, my talk to try to explain it. But basically, CSERF attacks are when um, the browser, ca uh, like, when someone tries to f forge a request, CSERF stands for cross-site request forgery. So basically, if uh, a, an attacker can forge a request and somehow get the user to send that request to your server, uh, then it will have all of the authentication tokens and information in that request in it. So it'll have like your authentication token and the, and the server says, oh, I know you. Um, you logged in, uh, and it will basically execute any code that you want on your server, uh, on the server. Uh, and But the user didn't want to execute the request. So that's what cross-site request forgery is. And so for that, there's the ring um, uh, middleware, the ring anti-forgery, I think it's called, the middleware library that protects against that. And that's built in by default in the um, in the ring defaults, the middleware defaults, um, which is why if you just develop using the defaults, I think it's the site defaults, uh, the middleware collection, uh, then, and you put a post request in your application, then it will say CSERP, like it'll give you the anti invalid anti-forgery token. Um, Basically, what you need to do then is to render the like for every request in Ring, the the middleware will generate a nonce and uh, attach it to the session, and then you need to render that that uh, nonce in your web forms as a hidden field or or whatever, and send that with every single request so that they know. Um, it's basically you render a secret in the page when you send send the HTML to the browser and the browser then says, okay. And so it sends it back with it. So you know that that request came from, uh, that it's not forged because someone who, um, if they just trick you to calling a post request or a get request, um, then they won't have that secret in it. Um, the other one, the other main, uh, sorry, I should have said that before the main, way to protect against CSERP attacks is to never, ever, ever use get request to change state on your server. Um, because it's really easy. Because then you can just, the the attacker can just render an image tag with the with a URI of the resource that it wants you to call that changes state. And then uh, they can just put the image tag anywhere on the internet. And every time you go to that site and load the image, it'll do a get request and send your browser information. Uh, with it to the web server. That's bad. Why are people bad? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't have the answer to that. 
But I'm I'm glad that uh, you have tips for us to keep us safe, or at yeah. least keep our web applications as as safe as they can can be. <laughs> Now there was this one library. I like the name of it, but um, let me see. What is it? It's Buddy. Is that yeah? Wh- which one? Did, what does that do? That's for authentication and authorization. Um, so it's it's a Buddy is a collection of libraries um, in Clojure. So it does uh, authentication, which means it tries to hook into some sort of login mechanism that you have in your application. Uh, so. And then if the login, like you just provide a function that does your authentication for you, and if that's successful, it will um, add an identity token to all of your requests. Like it's, it's a middleware integration. So every time if you successfully authenticate, it adds that to your request map and it also will set a cookie or, I, yeah, on the way out. So is it? Yeah, I think it saves in a... I don't remember if it saves it in the cookie by default or if I had to build that actually. But in any case, um, it's it's un, unopinionated in the authentication uh, in that it just saves whatever you return from the login function in the identity tag of your request map. And then it, within the web application, you can just retrieve that whatever it is, like if it's just the username, then you ret- you can retrieve the username from the uh, identity key of the map and you can you can do whatever you need. Um, and you can also use that to provide authorization, which is different than authentication. And authorization is um, providing like rules about who is allowed to access what. So I may have the main pages open to anybody, even if they aren't authenticated or, um, but, like an admin resource is only like available if uh, if you were an admin, and so that that's what Buddy does. Um, so it, like for as far as authorization goes, you can define access rules um, with a function that tests a request map and sees if this request map is allowed, like the identity token that you can extract from the request map, um, and sees if you should be accessing a resource or not. Cool. So uh, all all this stuff and more is on your talk. Is it online yet from your closure? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Okay, so we'll we'll put a link to um, that from the talk. So if you're listening, you should definitely um, check that out. Was was that your first year closure? Had you been to a year year closure? That was my first year closure. Yeah. What did you think? I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I just had. I I mean, I just I had so much fun. I, I just like the closure people. I guess. Um, and it was a really nice conference. It was really fun. I really liked all the talks. Um, so I had a great time. Well, that's wonderful to hear. I'm, I'm glad that you were, got a chance to be there, and I hope you'll be at many more. I hope so, too. <laughs> Maybe a U.S. one, too. You know, you never <laughs> if you're, if you're over It's a bit of a long flight. Yeah. Depends. <laughs> I can see that. Now, I did see, um, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to go to your closure um, this year. But I did see um, some wonderful tweets um, that you had done of sketching um, mm-hmm. notes from your talks. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of talk about your process and like how you got into it, because I just think it's it's really cool. Yeah. Um, well, I just started doing sketch notes actually the past year. Um, and for me, a sketch notes, for those who might not know, is just basically 
it's a type of note taking where you try to integrate visual elements into your into your notes. Um, one thing it does is to kind of structure them maybe in a little bit of a way that you could remember what went on later. But it also activates a certain part of your brain that like it activates both the uh, writing part of your brain and the and like the visual part of your brain. Uh, so if you take a note and then you draw like a smiley face next to it, you activate more parts of your brain so you remember the, that information better. So I got started doing sketch notes because I like, for me basically, because if I write it down, then I always remember it. And I'm a kinesthetic learner, so I only I write I learn mainly by writing. Um, and so for me, it's it's great because then I really take as much from the talk as possible. Um, and if I don't do that, I forget really quickly everything I heard just because that's how my brain is wired. So for me, it's a really great way to kind of remember what went on. And it's also fun to do. Um, so usually you can add, I, I like adding colors. So I just go crazy and add colors all, the, all over the place. And it's a really interesting, uh, I think, experience that brings, because you're very actively engaged in all of the talks um, because you have to be. Uh, so you like before the talk, I usually work on the title for maybe five minutes trying to make a nicer title. And then during the talk, I'm basically just writing as fast as I possibly can. And then if there's any break or they take like a small break to explain something or um, then I, I try to do a little bit like a box around the text or do some shadowing or do some color or do a little drawing or something. And so basically you're you're writing the whole talk. Um, and it, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a bit tiring, um, but it's worth it, uh, very worth it. So I enjoy doing it. Um, yeah. So I was, I was, uh, sketch noting the Euro closure when I was there. Yeah, I, I saw, and, um, you've shared some of those. I think they're on your blog too. So, yeah. um, we'll put a link to that, uh, afterwards too, but I have to ask, do you have any art background? So, because if I try to sketch note, it wouldn't look nearly as good as yours, I don't think. <laughs> um, well, I think, honestly, the biggest uh, the, the handwriting matters more than ability to sketch, I think. Because um, there's not many. I personally don't use many, like, visual elements. Uh, like, I don't, I can't sketch that that much that quickly. <laughs> so, Mine, there's a lot of sketch noters who do a lot more like artistic stuff and uh, little sketches. And I, I just don't try things that I can't do. Uh, but I, I guess I don't think I ever had a really artistic background. I did like cartoons. Like I read Garfield growing up and I read Calvin and Hobbes and I read Gilbert. And I always tried to like draw Garfield. Um, I, I think I at a certain point wanted to be a cartoonist, but I thought I never would make it. But then I would like I, so I tried to do that kind of drawing a little bit when I was younger, um, but uh, that's that's it. I never really was super artistic, I guess. I don't know. I, I've I've looked at them and I was like, wow, she must have done a lot of art. <laughs> I loved I loved doing crafts. I loved crafts. I am. My mom could never like. She used to ban me from, uh, that was her punishment that worked. It was the only one that worked, not the only one that worked, but she would uh, ground me from using like crayons or markers or any kind of craft stuff for weeks. And 
then I would be like, oh no. That was that was the, the most <laughs> effective punishment for me was to take my craft supplies away. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that reminds me. I, to- I have to apologize. I totally did things out of order. Um, at the very beginning, I was supposed to ask you about an art experience. And I got so caught up with chicken dances and talking to you about Germany and going on from there that I, I, I it totally missed it. So if, if, if you if you don't mind kind of going back to that, <laughs> now that we talked about crafts and art, do you have an art experience um, that you'd like to share? Yeah, well, I um, my experience, my I have a few experiences with art, but one that I remember is that um, I went to Paris and I wanted to go to the Louvre Museum. And I did go, but I went through really quickly because I was with some American friends and they were only there. They were like, it was like two hours. So we just basically ran through and I was going to go back the next day, but then I got pickpocketed so I couldn't go. And so I ended up because I was a student at the time and Musée d'Orsay is like um, the Impressionist Museum in Paris and they have free entrance for students. So I was able to go to that museum um, even though I didn't have much money anymore. Um, and then I, that, I really enjoyed that. So that was my art museum and my art experience in Paris is uh, getting pickpocketed and then going to the Impressionist Museum and seeing Van Gogh and Monet and Manet and really great paintings. Um, so yeah, that's my experience. Wow. That's like a good and a bad all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is that what kind of led to maybe your interest in security, securing uh, web apps? No, just kidding. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, have have you been to the museums in Germany too? Um, I think like I've been to a few museums. I tend to. I don't like older museums. Like, no, that's not true. I don't like like architectural museums that much. Like the history museums, where they only show pots. There's like a ton of museums. Every time you someone, especially in Greece, I think they have this problem, especially. When you um, when you dig anywhere, you might like turn up a whole bunch of fossils, which are basically all plates. And then uh, they have to, do, I mean, they're architectural remnants, so they have to like put them in a museum and show them. But it's all the same thing all the time, and I don't find them that interesting. So I've gone to a couple of museums, but I I don't know. I I don't like going to museums that much. I like going to art museums. Because you get like the experience of seeing art and and that I enjoy, but um, it just depends on the kind of museum, I think. So are you, do you enjoy more of a modern art or the classical or both? Um, I would say I probably enjoy most, I'd like classical art, but I also like some modern art. Uh, like I like symmetry and I like, uh, primary colors and and so that kind of like art that has a lot of just geometric shapes and stuff I enjoy that um I don't I don't understand a lot of art and then I feel a bit silly I I feel a bit silly all the time in in the art museums I'm like I don't even understand what this is supposed to be but then I read the thing and I'm like oh yeah (laughs) that's what it's supposed to be yeah I usually try not to take it too seriously so I just go through and and kind of if I like it I like it if I don't I don't and I don't try to I don't beat myself up about not understanding someone's artistic genius I assume they're artistically genius but I just don't get it Mm. so 
Yeah, so what do you think about like art and um, computer programming? Because I know some people have various opinions on whether computer programming is more of an art or a science or a blend, or do you have any opinion on that? Hmm, I never really thought about it, but I think like there's a certain beauty about uh, elegant web applications. I don't know if I'd say it's art, but I think there's something, there's some, I think there's some kind of a, like appeal that you have, you could feel towards a code base or not. And I'm not sure it's always based on logic. I think some of it's uh, subjective um, based on your personal preference. So in that sense, it's probably uh, somewhat related to art. (laughs) Yeah. So when, when you're solving uh, problems for like your business users that come to you and they want you to make something, um, do you feel like there's a creative aspect in that? Like the, now you've got to create something for them and like how you do it is, <laughs> is the creative part. I don't know. Well, I think there's an aspect to uh, design, which is definitely artistic when it comes to, to web applications like CSS and uh, like the CSS is hard. <laughs> Anyone who says CSS isn't hard. I don't know. They're, they must be like, an artistic genius or, or something. Cause, uh, I find it very difficult. Uh, so when it comes to design of like the application that you're actually, uh, showing to your user, I think there is a big aspect of, uh, creation, like, yeah, design and, and, uh, and creation in, in that sense. Um, there's the one, on one hand, I think both are actually important. I think the semantic of the web page needs to be correct. It needs to do the right thing. Um, and also it needs to look nice because, uh, no one really likes ugly web pages. Um, I think the, the making it look nice is, is a talent that I would like to keep developing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on it. Um, I find myself using bootstrap a lot for like finished components and sometimes customizing them and trying to make them look nicer or changing the colors or that sort of thing. But just to be able to visualize in my head how it would best look, I just, I think it's a very difficult process. Uh, and I think I'd, I can see myself doing more and more of that in, in the future. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's a it's a very difficult thing, and it's a very valuable skill when you when you have that. Yeah. Um, so, kind of on that subject, but maybe just more open. Um, what what are you excited about now? Is there anything that? Yeah. Well, it's. I actually am really excited currently about HTML, <laughs> which is one of those basic technologies that. Uh, I guess a lot of people would be surprised that it's exciting, but I kind of came into programming when I was um, during my studies and I kind of took a roundabout approach to learning how to develop web applications. And a lot of the things I did was wrong because I just learned from Stack Overflow. Um, And so there were things like, I, I think I wrote a blog post about it. Like I never understood how a form worked, like an HTML form. Um, and I didn't understand that by creating an HTML form and setting like input fields in the form, um, you're actually creating a request that you can send to the server. Like I never understood that. So I had a lot of frustrations when I was starting out developing 
web applications because I didn't understand what a form was and, and uh, um, how to use it. And I found like most like web applications, a lot of web applications are just really in essence um, a collection of connected web resources. Um, so you're on a page and it shows all the users and you want to create a new user. So you have a form that says create new user. It has the fields and then you add, send a post request to the server and then the server says, okay, I create a new user and then it can send you a redirect to um, back to the web page and then show like redirect to the re new user, use, user resource that was created. Um, and I find that uh, that's just HTTP. That's just how HTTP works with it, redirects and, and like requests. And I guess just in the past year or, or two, I figured out how HTML connects very nicely to HTTP and sending HTTP requests. So I actually like to do web applications completely without JavaScript, which uh, I know a lot of people can't imagine that. But um, that's, that's usually what I do is I create web applications and I really like doing them with pure HTML and CSS for styling. Um, and as I said, that CSS is the difficult part to make it look nice. Um, and then sometimes some JavaScript to make it a little bit nicer. So like you can add JavaScript to do auto submit or something like that instead of having the user click a button. Um, and that's like, an, it makes it a nicer user interaction, but you can, if you turn off JavaScript, it still works in any browser anywhere. It's also nice for mobile development because you don't have to load like all of the whole application. Like if you're using a single page application, you have to load the whole application um, to show a web site, like just one page. Um, and if you're doing HTML, you only have to load that page of the HTML if you're on a mobile site. So that can also be, depending on what you want to do, um, can also be a good option. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's a, a big concern, I mean the size of these JavaScript <laughs> resources that a lot of the web pages use. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a... I think as, as soon as you have a, um, uh, as soon as you have a somewhere where you really need a single page application, then JavaScript is great. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just in a lot of situations, like when you're developing a blog or something like that, you don't really gain anything from using JavaScript because it's just a collection of web articles which are rendered to HTML in your JavaScript library if you're using a JavaScript library and then links between them. And if you just develop it, like when my blog is actually just static HTML that has links between articles because that's how links work. And you can develop whole web applications and whole web pages using HTML. So I, I, I personally take it as kind of a, um, a challenge to get things to work without JavaScript. Um, I find it fun. Nice. And it seems like it's, it's almost like a, a beauty sort of thing. Like we're talking about art, like that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of like a simple streamlined thing for you. Is that, is that kind of fair? Yeah. yeah? I think so. I think I, it allows you, if you think in, in terms of HTTP requests, kind of a rest, uh, approach to the architecture of your system. Um, and you think of like HTML and, and CSS and JavaScript only as an afterthought, you break your, your uh, application down into, into pieces that can be reasoned with, uh, reasoned about very, very easily. Because um, the web, I, I think HTML is almost, I, I sometimes um, compare it to a functional programming language 
except it's not really, but it's just data, really. It's data that your browser is very, very good at interpreting. Um, and there's some semantic elements with forms and links. And that with those two semantic elements, there might be another, I'm not sure. But um, basically with links and with forms, you can do pretty much anything uh, in a web application. So. Very cool. <laughs> so uh, I guess we've covered a lot of ground. I'm trying, I'm trying to think, was there any, is there anything that, um, that you wanted to talk about today that we haven't hit on yet? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Um, because I wanted to make sure that I left time enough uh, to ask you the final question, which is actually one of my favorites, which mm -hmm. is getting advice um, mm -hmm. for the listeners and, and for me, because I'd love to hear, um, you know, everybody's advice and tips. So I guess if you have any, let us know. <laughs> okay. Um, well, my piece of advice, the, I think the thing that helps me the most is that, um, is that you should never be scared to ask questions. Um, I find a lot of times, uh, I guess I just started out learning a lot of things. Um, I'm not done yet. There's so much more to learn, but in some situations, um, like you're in a training or you're doing something and they're talking as they're like, they're trying to teach you something. And they're like, Oh, that's easy. You understand that they tell you that, you know, they don't ask you, do you understand? They say, this is really easy. It's trivial. Everyone understands that. And you're sitting there thinking, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't understand what you're talking about. And in that situation, there's two options. You can either say, okay, I'm dumb and I don't understand things. And you can get disappointed or you can decide I'm going to ask. Um, and I found a lot of times I ask the stupid questions and I learn a ton from, from stupid questions. And the person who's talking also learns something about um, what's easy and what's not easy. And a lot of times other people in the room, if, if you're in a like learning situation, uh, they also don't know. Um, and so I find that, that to be a very useful technique for learning new things is just ask questions when you don't understand things. That is very, 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 very important. <laughs> Maybe just, I'll just plus a thousand that. I, I, I think in my experience, that is so true. And again, there's, there's no dumb questions, right? <laughs> I think I really don't think there is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that some things you already learned, you already know them. And that's why they seem easy to you. But to someone who's never, ever thought about it before, or ever done anything with it before, it might be completely new. And uh, if you can somehow explain it to them and teach it to them, then they can understand as well. Um, so yeah, there's nothing too simple to, uh, to learn. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think there's anything that's too, um, yeah. I don't know if that made any sense what I just said. No, I, like I said, I, I would, I would plus a hundred, plus a thousand, um, that whole sentiment. I think it's very valuable and very important for everybody to keep in mind on whichever end of the spectrum you're mm -hmm. on. So, well, um, I think we'll wrap it up there. I okay. want to uh, thank you so much, Joy, for being on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and I, I hope we keep in touch and uh, can have you on again later on. Okay. 
So, um, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, this has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We are here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Joy Clark. Joy's Twitter handle is at I am Joy Clark. That's at sign I A M J O I C L A R K. Our host this week was Karen Meyer, who is at Gigasquid on Twitter. That's at G I G A S Q U I D. Think 8 billion arms on Twitter and GitHub. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>